Welcome to Technotopia, a podcast about the future. We're your hosts, John Biggs and Stefan Etienne. And today we're talking to Mark Stevenson, a writer, maker, and deep thinker. This is Technotopia, a podcast about the future. Welcome, one and all, to our first episode of Technotopia. This is a... Well, let's describe what we're doing here, Stefan. First, introduce yourself. Um, Well, based in New York City, um, I started tech writing when I was 14, and I'm 19 now. Um, And basically what we're doing is we're trying to figure out what the future will be like. We're talking to optimists, futurists, what have you, to see what's in store. Okay, so I started tech writing uh, 15 years ago, so when I was 25. So I'm far older than you. Uh, I'm most recently of TechCrunch. I used to run Gizmodo. And I originally wanted to write a book called Technotopia. I wanted to write a book about the future, why it was going to be amazing, why it was going to be great, and why technology wasn't going to be as horrible as we imagined it to be. We always talk about this dystopia, this idea of a dystopia, where the world is going to pot, where we're going to have a situation, it's going to sound, it's going to be just like a Blade Runner, there's going to be acid rain everywhere, there's going to be robots that are trying to kill us. I don't think that's true. Would you agree, Stefan? Uh, I disagree. I I don't think um, that will happen. Although I do think if left unchecked, things will get out of control. So you're you're the you're the you're the vision of the young. Uh, I'm the vision of the old and crotchety. What do you <laughs> think the world is going to look like in the next, uh, let's say, ten years? I think we're going to start seeing the adverse effects of tr- climate change. Um, politics will be forefront and center, as if they aren't already. Um, people will begin to see what are the main uses of technology, rather than posting what you had for coffee yesterday. Uh, myself included. Um, And most importantly, we're going to start to see the new generation come out of college. After all, it's only 2015 and you still have a lot of youngsters who are still getting their masters and their PhDs. So it'll be interesting to see what happens next. I remember when those kids come out of college, they're ending up in a job market that is is quite strange and and odd. I remember when I graduated, I was able to find a job immediately. Uh, Now it seems like that's completely different. That's one of the things I wanted to talk about on this program. Ideally, I want to talk about multiple things uh, as we go forward. Today, we're going to talk to Mark Stevenson. He's he's, he's good because he wrote a book about optimism. Uh, techno-optimism. But he, surprisingly, he's not a uh, complete techno-optimist. He's going to explain himself a little later on. But I want to talk about work. I want to talk about programming. I want to talk about artificial intelligence. I want to talk about autonomous vehicles. I want to talk about robots. I want to talk about the things that are going to replace us in the future and what happens to our brains when we no longer have to turn a steering wheel or when we no longer have to add a widget to another widget to make a living. This is a brave new world that has such people in it. And we are talking to people. We are talking about optimism in the face of what seems to be the potential for a dystopia. That's true. Although this also begs the question, didn't people of the 1800s with the onset of the elevator and the 1900s with the onset of the Spitfire, didn't they think the same thing? Or weren't they thinking the same things? Uh, 
that the elevator was going to change the world and that the Spitfire was going to change the world? Of course. And they did in some ways. Well, I mean, let's... let's <clears throat> from my understanding, the, the thing that changed the world the most was probably penicillin and the car. Uh, penicillin made sure that you didn't die at age 12. And the car let you go from point A to point B and escape your circumstances. If you were in an area with <clears throat> poor economic growth, you could literally get into a car, any car, and leave. And it changed, it changed the way America worked, and it changed the way the world worked eventually. So we have, we have those two things. Uh, unfortunately, penicillin and the car both had side effects. Penicillin eventually bred superbugs that, that are going to destroy us all. And the car bred the exact problem that we're facing right now, climate change. And the, and the, the burning of fossil fuels has, has hastened our demise. I would argue that we are at a position to survive all of these things. And it's one of the goals of this program, of this podcast, to tell the world that, yes, we are going to survive these things. That you, at 19, and me, at 40, are going to be able to make it out of this thing alive, right? <laughs> Using what means, we're not sure of yet. <laughs> so if you would like to contact us, you can email us at tips at technotopia.cc. And our website is technotopia.cc. We'll be posting, we'll be posting uh, news articles and things there uh, just to share some of the information that we get. Our hope is to do this weekly. Uh, we're going to have to try to find an interview every week. Sometimes it'll be uh, Stefan and I. Sometimes it'll be just one of us. Our goal is to have a 30-minute podcast that you all can listen to on the go and hear some of the greatest thinkers in the world, like Mark Stevenson, who's about to join us, talk about what's going to happen in the next 10, 20, 50, 100 years, and why <laughs> we are not going into a Blade Runner-esque hellscape, and instead we're going to go into a very, very interesting new world full of things that we haven't even imagined yet. Or are we? Or are we? That is the question. You're, are you, are you going to our, are be our pessimist on the show? Uh, I'd hate to be, but I can play devil's advocate. Let's talk to Mark right now and see what he has to say about techno-optimism. That we shall. John Biggs. I'm Stefan. And today we are talking with Mark Stevenson. You are a self-described techno-optimist, is that correct? No. No. <laughs> you wrote no, a book. Have, you wrote a book have, on optimism, and that's why we brought you on. Indeed. I have I have been described uh, <laughs> as a self-described techno-optimist, but I, I'm actually not uh, an optimist by default. Or let me let me explain what I mean. Um, introduce yourself. Belief. Introduce yourself to the world, and let's uh, let's, let's let's do this step by step. Let's let's use well, the. People, uh, call me, people call me all sorts of things, none of which I, I particularly like. You know, I get called a futurist. I get called a techno optimist. I get called all sorts of things. Um, what I am is uh, I like to call myself a possibilist, mm -hmm. um, and by, by that, I my belief is that the future is very much up for grabs at the moment, in a way that it hasn't been, you know. For a long time, and that the levels of change that are coming, you know, with technology are quite extraordinary. Um, so I believe the future is up for grabs, and I believe in an optimism of ambition. 
to say, okay, if it is, let's make it awesome. Um, but I believe in a pragmatism of approach, which is okay, given that we have these options, how do you then go ahead and, and, and make those things happen? And, and uh, that's not a given. So I believe that the, the potential for an amazing future is there. That it will happen is really dependent on our reaction to it, which is, you know, why podcasts, you know, like this are really important mm-hmm. because the battle will really happen in cultures to our mindset as to how we approach new technologies and the ethical questions they throw up. Um, so my current book that I'm writing at the moment is, is really all about um, the interface between technology and ideas and society and how those things play out um, in optimistic ways. The people I'm profiling are people who have rebooted energy or, uh, or food systems or whatever, using new technologies or new ways of thought. So, so I'm not uh, uh, an optimist in the sense that I just think it's all going to be okay. okay. I think it could be, okay. and I think we should all, everybody of good conscience should be working towards that outcome. Arguably, arguably, you could understand the confusion when your when your uh, when your blog uh, and your page is an optimist tour of the future dot com. So yeah, if you want to, you have to blame check... my you have to blame my agent. <laughs> so my agent read the book and went, "This is great." And I'm feeling very optimistic. You should put the word optimist in the title because nobody does that. And to be honest, it was a very astute uh, move because, it's, because suddenly people started picking up the book that wouldn't have done, and and it was very successful. And and so. Um, yeah, optimism of ambition, I suppose, mm-hmm. pragmatism of approach. So. Okay, so let's. I had I had a few questions that we're going to be running through every time we do this, but why don't we talk about the definition of optimism of ambition? Uh, okay. The are you talking about the potential for good that must be realized? Will it be realized? What are some of the uh, what are some of the things that are holding us up in that in that respect? Well, um, I mean, my go-to guy on this is Martin Luther King. I always re- end up referring back to Martin Luther King. So he was, he was a, an absolute genius at motivating people, not with fear, but with um, optimism. In that, if you look at all of his speeches, and, and I advise everybody to read them and read them many times, his ability to say, look, I imagine something better, and it looks a bit like this, uh, was extraordinary. And once you can get somebody to imagine a better future, a more equal one, a more sustainable one, a more humane one, it's very hard for them to unimagine it. And our problems are really the, the lack of imagination. So now we haven't eradicated racism, right? But I would, I would argue, and I think quite convincingly, that the civil rights movement and the fight against racism was, was, was vastly accelerated by his ability to say, look, I've been to the mountaintop. I've looked down the other side. It looks pretty good. I, you know, I have a dream and the dream looks like this. So really, it's um, a lack of imagination, I think, that holds us back. And that's because, of course, we, we're, we're always thinking about stuff in the frame we're in, and it's very hard to step outside that frame. So a lot of my work, with whether that's with governments or corporations or school children or readers, is, is to try and get them to step out of that and go, look, this is what's possible, but you have to be able to see it before you can make it happen. Right, so, Mark, what's there to be happy about? You know, we have... Moore's law that's supposedly approaching. We have people who are inundated with social media and completely jaded with their own realities in comparison to others. What's there to really be happy about? Um, it's a really good question. I mean, it's not for me to tell anybody what they should be happy about. Um, I th- my job is to is to get people open to the possibilities of something better. And if you look at any uh, transformation of uh, people, it's generally about them seeing something bigger than themselves. So um, if you look at, for instance, like work and addiction, you know, the best way to get somebody out of an addiction is to get them away from themselves by making them, getting them involved with helping other people. So um, happiness is kind of, uh, is kind of a choice. 
And once you feel that you're part of something bigger, um, then then you can go and grab hold of the levers and the steering wheels and the and the building blocks to go and make that happen. So I my the, what I would say is um, you should be happy about your ability to get involved in making your own world and everybody else's better. And once you seize that, you'll you'll find yourself in a much in a much more rewarding place. And Daniel Dennett, the philosopher, says that one of the occupational hazards of being a philosopher is you get asked difficult questions at parties. He says one of the difficult questions he gets asked is what's the definition of happiness? And he says the best the best answer I've come up with is find something more important than you are and dedicate your life to it. And right now we have all these amazing challenges that are facing us. I mean, how do we create this sustainable, humane, just civilization on, on, on this planet when we don't have a manual, nobody told us how to do it, but yet we do seem to have the tools to be able to do it. And now it's a matter of how we organize our our philosophies, our politics, our thoughts, our culture to do that. Um, and so that's why I spend a lot of my time working in the cultural space with artists or writing books or currently working on a couple of TV shows because I think the argument really is in, is in culture that's not a technological one. So I think, you know, what's there to be happy about? That, uh, that the game is on. Uh, the game is afoot. And, um, and isn't that a wonderful time to be alive? Oh, very cool. Is there, are you seeing any specific... Uh dangers coming up anything that anything that other people might be missing right now what are what are you what's what's ringing your bells as it were well i mean there's so many dangers coming up um which is uh, why things need to change so you know let's just talk about the agricultural system um you know the green revolution was fantastic in one way but it's got the seeds of its own destruction within it i mean the water table is dropping we've got an unsustainable agricultural system that we all rely on um, that's been a miracle in some ways by keeping billions of us alive, but it, but is on the teetering on the brink of collapse. Now, around Beijing right now, they're they're drilling wells to you know a thousand, two thousand uh, uh, feet to try and get to the water. California has the first uh, water rationing you know in its in its history, and people are sort of uh, repurposing old oil rigs to get to the water because agriculture's you know uh, taken the water table so low. You have dead zones in the Gulf of Mexico. I mean that you know that is that is that's a that's terrible. We have an energy system that can't keep pace with demand and is visiting on us an environmental crisis of unprecedented proportions. We have a healthcare system that's not a healthcare system, but a sick care system, where the current business model in healthcare says that people who are dying from tuberculosis um, are just not uh, worth the money uh, to invest in drugs, but, but obesity drugs are fine. I mean, that's not a system that's working. We have a financial system that's completely out of step with most people's perceptions of value and um, you know, is, is, is riven with systemic risk. And we have an education system that's educating our children to the past that's happened rather than the future they're going to have to create. I mean, you know, <laughs> stop me now because I could fill this optimistic <laughs> with like literally another, another 20 minutes of what's wrong. But the, the, the colliery of that is if something's wrong, then you've got something to fix. And there's nothing more satisfying, particularly with the technology we now have, the powerful tools we now have, to go and, and fix that. And that's the great sort of disruptive um, how we've seen a technology, which happened initially kind of, um, people talk a lot about the digital revolution as being the latest example of that disruptive power. But really, I always say, you know, digital was just the, the trailer. It was the hors d'oeuvre. It's cocktail sausage before dinner. And you look at what's happening with, you know, 3D printing, mm -hmm. uh, synthetic biology, uh, the ability to completely disrupt our existing industrial ways of doing things and at the same time make that better is hugely, hugely exciting. Um, so, so, you know, there's a, I think there's a, 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 an old proverb, I'm not sure which country it's from, but it's never let a good crisis go to waste. Mm -hmm. And we've got a whole bunch of great crises now, which we can uh, really get our teeth into and have fun solving. 
Okay. So then, Mark, what's the dessert? Can we fix this, and what will the world look like in 10 years? Well, I don't make predictions because, you know, I mean, if you look at the history of futurology, which I, I, I regard as a slightly dodgy profession. Uh, <laughs> it's a real profession? See, is that a profession? Well, I think and even calling it a profession, I think, is, yeah. is, is stretching it. I mean, uh, I get called a futurologist, which I don't like, because if you, if you look at it, the... It's, it's generally you see people's wish lists or or, um, or uh, prejudices put into some kind of prediction, um, and um, you learn a lot more about the person who made the prediction or their particular you know worldview, or the time that they made the prediction, the culture they were in, than, than anything that actually happened. Uh, a good example is Back to the Future Two. I was recently asked by the BBC to talk about that, and they said, "Did did they get it right?" Because <laughs> 2015 was the year that Mark, Martin McFly went forward. And I said, "No, it was terrible." I mean, if you look at that movie, it's full of you know skateboards, baseball caps, and fax machines, which tells you that it was made in 1989 or whenever it was. It doesn't tell you very much about the future we have now. So, um, I don't know what the world's going to look like, Stefan. What I do know is it's up for grabs, and I do believe the human race is a co-inspirational network. But we must at least imagine a better future in 10 years' time, 20 years' time. So at least if you can imagine that, you can get there. You know, Martin Luther King imagined a world without racial prejudice. We're not there yet, but you could certainly argue in a, in a, in a, in a world where we have, you know, uh, uh, Barack Obama as president, uh, you know, that, that things are better than they were. And that was inspired by the dream. So I don't know what the world's going to look like, but I think we should imagine a world that's sustainable, equitable, humane, um, compassionate, where we're not reliant on fossil fuels, where uh, healthcare is really healthcare, not sick care, where we have a much more entrepreneurial education system, um, and where we have a lot more empathy between the peoples of the world, um, and that war is over. You know, I mean, I'm all for John Lennon. You know, let's let's imagine. You know, if you aim for the stars, you might get to the top of the tree, but if you aim for the top of the tree, then you'll only get to the bottom branch. So, so I don't know. This is my answer, but my my, my response is dream as big and as optimistic as possible, and then work your nuts off to get there. Are we already there in some cases? Haven't we? Uh, are, do we just whine too much? Do you think? Do we, that the, do we as humans whine too much about the <laughs> about the injustices we see or the or the problems that we see? Have we have we surpassed some of these things? That's a really good question, and uh, um, and you know, for instance, I was thinking about this the other day, and. You know, the world, sorry, you know, Britain's poorest individual at the moment lives better than an English king did, you know, a thousand years ago in terms of their access to medicine, you know, power, you know, entertainment, et cetera, et cetera, pretty much. Um, so it's relative. Um, I don't know if you saw that great study about um, Capuchin monkeys being offered different rewards for doing a task. You know, there's two monkeys side by side in a cage and they get given a piece of cucumber or something for doing a task and then they start getting one of the one of the monkeys not cucumber but you know a piece of mango and something else and and, and now two or three tasks later even though they were very happy getting the same reward you know five minutes ago the, the, the monkey that's still getting the cucumber refuses to uh, do the task and starts throwing the cucumber back at the experimenter and gets very angry so i think you know it, it's relative um you know we have achieved an awful lot and i think we have to be grateful for that and you know, if you took away some of the things that you have now uh, that we take for granted and then gave them back to you a year later, you'd be so grateful for them, and yet we're not grateful for them now. So I don't think there's a simple answer to that question. Um, really, it's, it's, it's not about what have we got. It's more about what do we want, and I mean not in terms of material gain, but in terms of the, the culture and society 
and the the rules of engagement between human beings and the environment, uh, you know, and each other that we, that we believe, you know, will make all of us happy. And and that comes, I think, from a, a collective empathy and a collective effort, uh, which is, you know, one of the great things about technology and globalization is that it, generally it tends to bring people together, not separate them, with some notable exceptions. All right, then. So, Mark, you work with artists directly, and they deal in empathy. What will yeah. art do to change the world in the future, in the optimistic future, if I dare say so? <laughs> um, it's a really good question, uh, Stefan. And it's interesting, you know, what what do we think of as art? And I don't like to necessarily separate art from anything else, but I do often talk about an artistic sensibility. And what artists are very good at, the good ones, uh, they're good at several things. One, they're good at uh, juxtaposition of taking ideas that were previously separate and, and smashing them together in new and interesting ways that change the way you think. Uh, all the great entrepreneurs I know, all the great scientists I know, all the great writers I know, journalists, they're very good at doing that because they enable you to see something from a new perspective. And the other thing that artists are very good at is engaging with your heart as well as your mind. Um, you know, uh, the consultancy I run, all of my heads of practice have to be successful artists um, because um, I believe if you don't know the tools of, of the artistic mindset, how will you move anybody to do anything? Because we're all moved by our hearts first and our brains second. We all post-rationalize our decisions, but we're emotional creatures first and rational creatures second. You know, so like, you know, Stevie Wonder can say something really interesting and important about my relationship that I haven't been able to express myself. And he can make me sing and dance while I'm doing it. I mean, that's just, mm -hmm. just an incredible skill. You know, a really great comedian. I'm sure you've all been in that situation where you're sitting in a comedy club. You know, the guy or the girl on stage has said something hilarious about relationships that you totally relate to. You've been trying to say it to your partner for the last 14 years, and they've nailed it in two sentences, and it's true. I mean, the best comedy is usually the truest, and it's succinct. So having those abilities to engage the heart and tell the truth in new and surprising ways is, is absolutely the stuff that moves us all forward. So I'm not necessarily sure it's art itself, but the artistic sensibility, which has been separated, I think, uh, from us, or we, we're told that we're either artists or we're scientists or engineers, which is kind of ridiculous. Um, it's the artistic sensibility that I'm, I'm most interested in cultivating. And, you know, uh, John C.D. Brown, who's somebody else you should probably interview on this podcast, mm -hmm. one of the greatest thinkers in America, I believe, you know, he says you have to think of your life as a work of art. You have to, you know, cultivate it as a way, uh, curate it in the way an artist would curate uh, the world. You know, as an engineer and a technologist, he's second to none. Yet he sees himself as much as as a philosopher and an artist as he does a, a technologist. And and that's that's the kind of way I like to think about that. What should we do uh, in terms of education to uh, promulgate that? Because it seems like STEM and everything else is a uh is taking precedence over um, over liberal arts. I think the yeah. I think there are more people in in entrepreneurship and business now than than uh, liberal arts in many of the major colleges. Yeah, it's not fascinating. I mean, I don't have a problem with people learning, you know, science, technology, engineering, mathematics, all that kind of stuff. You know, that's that's great. But but to separate it from art is kind of ridiculous and, and actually it's the separation of subjects that is the real problem i think in education and that comes from an industrial mindset where we put everything into a system and you know i mean i don't know about you but when i was you know five years old you know i was a learning machine mm -hmm. like you can stop me sticking my fingers into things i shouldn't be sticking them into and climbing up things that i shouldn't be climbing up and asking why all the time 
And, uh, and, you know, parents of young kids always say to me, God, my kids ask so many questions. And I always respond by saying, don't worry, by the time they've been to school, they will have stopped. And, uh, you know, people recognize the truth in that. And, that and, and why is that? It's because you get to school and they say, oh, you can't ask that question now. You have to ask that question at two o'clock this afternoon, you know, mm-hmm. in Miss Smith's class. Uh, oh, that question isn't on the curriculum, so stop asking it. You're being annoying. So what they do is all the stuff that makes learning interesting, which is that artistic stuff we talked about, the juxtaposition of ideas, is separated out. So all the really fascinating stuff about why a particular scientist was inspired by a particular work of art or in a conversation or whatever to come up with this new way of thinking about stuff and then how that you know worked in society. You know, that whole joy of learning this is stuff i try and recreate in my books is is literally taken out i mean you know they make learning dull at most uh, institutions which when you think about it is a hell of an achievement if you're also (laughs) if you're also you know admiring of Mussolini's ability to get the trains running on time you'd love our current education system but but why why how can you take kids that are literally so eager to learn that they can't can't wait to ask the next question and by the time they've been to school, by the time they get to 10 or 12, they think learning is a chore. And that is a that is an absolute failure of imagination. It's a dereliction of duty. It, it crushes the very soul. It crushes the souls of all of us. You know, and some of us are lucky enough to have survived that. Helen Keller said creative minds can survive any kind of bad treatment. But but really, you know, get rid of a subject based education and start making a question based education where we follow um, the questions that we, we naturally ask. Um, at the moment, it's like, you know, there's going to be some answers you're going to have to learn. You know, knowledge is about knowing stuff currently. Mm-hmm. Really, knowledge is about asking the right question. That's the thing we don't teach. So uh, project-based learning where we, 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 you know, okay, let's build a plane, you know, rather than let's study aerodynamics, you know, in one class and, you know, let's study uh, architecture in another class. It's just kind of ridiculous. I can attest to that, Mark, being that high school and college are freshest in my mind. Yeah. My, my position as an honor student was more so determined about how close I was to the teacher's teaching plan rather than what I could ask intuitively that was better than what my peers could ask. Yeah. Um, so my question for you would be, what should I be reading to figure out what questions I should ask? <laughs> Uh, I wouldn't presume to tell you what you should be reading. It sounds like you're, you're already asking the right questions. I mean, asking the question, what question should I be asking, is a hell of a good question. Um, you know, I just, I think if, if you live by the mindset that asking the right question is, is, is more useful than knowing an answer, um, you're probably on the right track. Um, because once you've asked the right question, the answers often soon become apparent or the way to find the answers soon becomes apparent. So um, parents often ask me, what, what, is, what should I do with my kids? And um, I'm thinking of writing a book called School Hacks with a friend of mine, David Price, about what parents can do when they see their children's creativity being crushed. And one of the hacks we've got is when your son or daughter comes home from school, don't ask them what they learned today. Ask them if they asked a good question today. Um, so I don't know what you should be reading. I think, come on, you're hanging out with John Biggs. <laughs> you're doing a you're doing a podcast about uh, the future of the world. You were a tech blogger by the time you were 14. And, you know, I'm, I, Stefan, I'm 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 don't. <laughs> what I would say to other people is be more like Stefan. Well, our, our our assumption is that other people are going to learn that are going to listen to this outside of our immediate families and ourselves. So hopefully we can we can share some information. So this is this is this whole podcast is called Technotopia. So I can't let you off without uh, giving us a final 
view of what technology is going to do the world in the next uh, in the next few years. What what do you most want to see? Could it be jetpacks? Could it be a solution to the water crisis? Could it be a great place for your uh, for your family to grow up in? Something like that. Well, all of those things. Um, I think you know. I mean, as I say, I, I don't make predictions, but what what you do see um, is. I mean, my, my hopes is not really technological, I have to say, because I think the technology is going to happen anyway. It does. You know, um, you can't stop that that trend. You know, and Kevin Kelly wrote a great book about this called What Technology Wants. Um, one of the things you see with technologies, as, as I said earlier, is it kind of has this democratizing force. It brings power to the people, the way the Internet has reduced the gap between information rich and information poor. What's going to happen with the renewables and distributed energy revolution, that will you know, reduce that gap again. Um, but the thing about that is it means power is coming increasingly to, to, to individuals in a way that hasn't happened before. Um, and as Spider-Man's uncle and Franklin Roosevelt said, with power comes responsibility. And with mass power comes mass responsibility. So we're going to have to think of a different culture, a different way of governing ourselves based around our personal empowerment through technology. And we can talk a lot about the technology, but what I really want to see is a debate in culture about what kind of world do we want and how are we going to create it collectively as a society. Um, you know, it's not something the government's going to do for us. It's not something corporations are going to do for us. It's something we're going to have to really think about. And that's why, you know, podcasts like this and the questions you're asking are so important. So I guess I want to see a world uh, with more people like you guys in it asking the right questions. So you're OK with that? No flying cars yet. Yeah, I mean, I, do I need a flying car? Ah, really? It would be nice. It would be nice. It kind of would be, but the thing is, I only want a flying car if it's not going to have an, a, a negative impact on the environment. Okay. You know, so it comes, it comes with a you know a whole bunch of ethical questions attached. Huh. So now we got to figure out anti gravity. All right. So Stefan, yeah. we got something. We got something to do. Uh, Mark, where can people find your books and and what you've been writing? Uh, well, um, where can they find me? I guess I have a website, which is just markstevenson.org, and pretty much everything links off that. They can mm-hmm. email me, find me, or the companies that I run, or the people I advise um, from there. Okay, super. Well, thank you very much. I think this was very, very helpful, and especially as our first, uh, our first guest, you gave, us a, you gave us a taste of things to come. Um, any last words for our, for our listeners who are trying to change the world? Uh, yeah, uh, just remember uh, what Amelia Earhart said, uh, which is never interrupt anybody doing something you said was impossible. <laughs> so if you're, if you're either be Amelia Earhart or shut up. Beautiful. Thank you, Mark. No problem. Love to speak to you.